I'm Carrie Ann. And I'm Allison. And this is Podcast Without an Audience. Where two friends pick two topics and find intersections. Or not. (laughs) Dawn's face right now. Her little paws. Hold on, let me take a picture. Please do. So we are coming off of a pretty hot weekend. Pretty hot couple of weekends. Yeah, girl. How was your July 4th? It was excellent. How was yours? Uh, it was good. I, you, you were know, traveling. This I July went out 4th. to Philadelphia, uh, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, as <laughs> some might say. So I know we have some listeners in Philadelphia. So I was kind of like looking around, trying to see if there was anybody I recognized. Didn't run into anybody that I knew. Did you just pass out Pod with an odd stickers to everyone you met? Yeah, absolutely. Have you heard about the book of the? No. Bad joke. Okay. (laughs) Um, But it was so much fun. It was exhausting, but I picked out... So the reason that we went was that Ray, you know, he owns a videography company. He filmed a wedding up there. So I tagged along, kind of hung out um, while he was doing that. But Sunday, we went and picked out my wedding band. Oh, I know. It's getting so close. uh, We are less than six months away. Oh, my God. I'm going to have a heart attack. (laughs) You're getting married. I'm getting married. Um, Going to the chapel. (laughs) but it's super beautiful and i'm so excited oh i'm it is beautiful yeah thank you yeah thank you um tell me about yours so uh after you got back we just missed each other and i was on my way up to maryland for this big bike ride yes yeah so uh me and about a hundred of my closest acquaintances Mm -hmm. and strangers uh biked for 184 miles from cumberland maryland to dc it was incredible um this is always like the most healing and like rejuvenating thing i do even though i'm exhausted afterwards yeah no shit so the day that this podcast comes out i will be sleeping i'm sure pretty much guarantee it i I will do nothing for the next week i noticed that you were kind of walking kind of differently Um, yeah, my ass is a little chapped from being on that saddle <laughs> yeah. for so long. <laughs> wow. So, and I know that, like, some of the Teamsters donated to your... Um, yeah, it was incredible. Yeah. Um, I felt so supported. Absolutely. Um, this is such an amazing little community that we've established here, and I am so thankful. Um, so I know that the past few weeks have been really busy for us. Mm-hmm. You guys should let us know what you've been up to, because it's the summer. It's hot as hell. Um and we would love to hear from you. It is so hot, and my skin has not seen the sun in a whole ass <laughs> year. Like, even, I mean, longer than that. I've never needed to be in the sunlight more. Oh, I for sure sit outside for at least five minutes a day, almost every day now, because I just need the sun oh, on I my need skin. The sun. And like, future people are gonna be listening to this, and it's gonna be the winter, and we see you. And I'm so we see sorry. It's winter depression. But listen, we're there with you. The it will get warmer again, and you will have a renewed sense of life. Life. Oh, it's like um, being born. It's like being born. <laughs> Uh, but I want to get back to community for just a second because okay. we have built this incredible community of Teamsters. And I recently read an article that just blew me away in the worst of ways. And I wanted to share it with you. Uh-oh. There are only about 21 lesbian bars left in the country. <gasps> what? Our community is dwindling. Oh, my God. Woo. Why? Yeah. So I know that we have a trip coming up to Nashville soon. We uh, do. With some pod friends in about so a month. So next month. Let's, yeah. Let's talk about that real quick because next month in August, we are partnering with our BFFs over at Chick Shit Podcast. The dearest people we've ever known. You have to check them out. They are so fucking funny. Phenomenal. Um, They're a movie podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, they talk about feminism and um, all the issues in the media. Really mm-hmm. phenomenal. They are hosting a podcast prom. So Hashtag pod prom. Pod prom 2021. <laughs> 
Um, so fucking excited. So we are heading to Nashville, Tennessee. Um, if you're in the Tennessee area, definitely be sure to check it out. You can find them at Chick Shit Pod on Instagram. They're also anywhere you find your podcasts. Yeah, and I'm sure that we will also be posting stuff about Pod Prom for anyone in the Nashville area who might like to join us. Mm-hmm. But the reason I brought that up is one of the remaining lesbian bars is in Nashville. Oh, perfect. So we have got to go while we are there. We will definitely go. Um, Wait, is it Lipstick Lounge? It is. <gasps> How'd you know that? Because that's where I went before I cracked my head open. I referenced <gasps> that in like th- oh episode three. I had not put that together. Yes. Okay. You can smoke in the bar. That's right. Yes. Okay, it's coming back to me. Um, yeah, so we've got to go back to Lipstick Lounge. Hopefully, you'll have a better experience than you did the first time. I sang Desperado and karaoke, and I sang my heart out. I bet you did, and I can't wait to see it this Ugh. time. Well, okay. Um, there are also a lot in New York City. There's a whole page, like a website dedicated to the bars that are still open, and there's a Wikipedia page. So go see if there are any lesbian bars near you, because the queer community needs needs your support. Absolutely. Um, we went to, do you remember this? We went to the oldest lesbian bar in, in the DC. country when we were in D.C. the very first time we went together. Yes, Phase I do. one. And they shut down in, like, 2017. I remember you danced with a stranger. I did dance with a stranger. Aww. The first of many <laughs> oh she was not the first <laughs> uh-huh at that moment the most recent of many mm-hmm. um, that was really fun we went up there i think this is when you had applied for your master's program but hadn't gotten in yep, yet yep and so yeah i remember we were in the gallaudet bookstore and uh-huh. you were like can should i buy these Oh, and I was so worried it was going to... To jinx your... Yeah. To drinks, Yeah. We jinx did yourself. buy one shirt because when I got my acceptance letter, I was wearing my one Gallaudet shirt. Yeah. Um, but I also would not buy any alumni stuff until after I graduated. Yeah. Which is why course. I only have the one sweatshirt because I was terrified of jinxing anything. Yeah. Well, I don't think that's... That's like walking under the clock at UNCG. You just don't do it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, but go to lesbian bars and clubs because they're phenomenal and much needed spaces the ones in greensboro have all closed mm-hmm. um we still have one club uh that's definitely i think geared more towards gay men yeah um our favorite place shut down several years ago yeah. which i know we've talked about before so yeah. i don't want to you know bring it up too much but just reading this article my mind was blown there are less lesbian bars in the country than there are states yeah that's wild and the majority of them are in new york city right so, man, well, way to bring us down. Let's bring us up. <laughs> Maybe I don't know. <laughs> I'm scared. What are I, you? Ta- what are we talking about? Today? I, I don't think my topic's going to be the upper. Hopefully, yours will be. Um, a mine little. is mine is an upper. Okay. Yeah. Mine well, is not parts of it. The end. Well, you'll see. Cool. So mine. Um, I'm actually going to start you off with uh, a little story, and then you will see where we're going with this. I'm ready. Okay. On August 14th, 1971, nine men were arrested by police officers from the Palo Alto Police Department. Each man was taken into custody, booked, had their fingerprints taken, was blindfolded, and moved into a holding cell. They were then taken into a mock prison that had been set up in the basement of Jordan Hall. This was the beginning of the Stanford Prison Experiment. I have been wondering when you were going to cover this. Okay. So, so it's fascinating. This is unbelievable. Um, I watched several YouTube videos on it, read a lot of articles. Of course, I've heard about this yeah. before. It's really well known and terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to get into it. But this took place at Stanford University. Um And I think that's all the background information you're going to get right this second. (laughs) So uh, August 14th to August 20th, 1971. So a group of students led by Professor Philip Zimbardo began a research experiment to examine the power dynamics that exist between guards and inmates in a prison setting. One of the things I did not know until starting this research was that This research was funded by the U.S. Office of Naval Research to study the 
hierarchy of power and military presence. So the Marines and the Navy basically came together mm-hmm. and were like, we need to study um, the relationships between inmates and um, the guards. So, okay. So what's um? So this is I don't. People probably know this. I don't. What is considered a military prison? Is this like people that they are capturing from? Yeah, like the other side or so military people can end up in military prisons for any number of reasons, um, but they're basically military run. One of the biggest and most notable in recent history is uh, Abu Ghraib, which mm-hmm. uh, during the early stages of the Iraq War was uh, found to be torturing inmates pretty mm-hmm. severely. Right, um, and right. there were lots of articles written, lots of books about the atrocities that happened there. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, this is much later than the 1971 research. However, this research does kind of bring some light to what may have gone down there. Right. Does okay. that make Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but what the U.S. Office of Naval Research, they what they really wanted to know was if conditions in prisons were shaped more by the prison environment or the personalities of the guards. Like, what is Mm -hmm. impacting these power hierarchy and, you know, uh, potential violence? Mm -hmm. Zimbardo's primary reason to focus on this research was he wanted to know about the power of roles, rules, symbols, group identity, and situational validation of behavior that generally would repulse ordinary individuals. So he wanted to get down to the dirty parts of this. Zimbardo... Zimbardo developed a mock prison that seemed surprisingly real. The space had originally been a laboratory and was converted to look like a prison. Each room had bars on the doors, a cell number, and room for about three prisoners. There was also a solitary confinement cell that had previously been like a broom closet. Okay, great. (laughs) Yeah. Ex-convicts and correction officers had been consulted to ensure that it really felt like a prison. Oh, yikes. So basically, they take these nine guys that actual police officers have arrested and booked, Mm -hmm. blindfold them, and then lead them into this mock prison, Mm -hmm. which is in the basement of the psychology building at Stanford University. Um, So... But of course, they don't know where the fuck they are. Right. But who are these nine people? Like, who and how did they get selected to do this work? An ad was placed in the newspaper, and the ad read, quote, Male college students needed for a psychological study of prison life. $15 a day for one to two weeks beginning August 14th. For further information and applications, please come to blah, blah, blah. $15 a day? $15 a day for one to two weeks. Mm. 70 people applied. Oh, my God. Now, I don't know about you, but if I read that in the newspaper, I'd be like, uh, fuck you and your $15. I mean, studying prison life, I think, would be interesting. First of all... I also am not going to participate in an experiment about it. Who has the time? (laughs) College students, apparently. And $15 is probably, like, a bazillion dollars in 1970-whatever. I did not do the research. Well, you heard it here first. (laughs) Uh, Ultimately, 24 white male college students were selected to participate. So they weeded out anyone who had previous criminal charges or a record. They um, eliminated people with mental health issues, physical disabilities, um, so on and so forth. So they really tried to get a very uniform group of people. Right. Uh, They were all white, all male. A 2007 study asked if the wording in this advertisement may have uh, impacted the outcome of the experiment by attracting a certain type of respondent. Okay. So they because they specifically asked for college students, and they specifically asked about prison life. So they recreated the original ad and ran it parallel to an ad that omitted the phrase "prison life." And they found that people who responded to the prison life ad had higher levels of aggressiveness, authoritarianism, narcissism, and social dominance. Oh, I bet. They also scored lower in measures of empathy and altruism, (gasps) which makes so much sense as we're going into this. But how cool that someone recreated this just to see who would respond. Like, that's such a key component to this that 
I think is overlooked is who's participating. I always think about they're sitting in a room. They're like, okay, Sheila, we got to figure out what the fuck we're going to say in this ad. They're bouncing things off each other. (laughs) They've got a focus group. It's very intentional. Yeah. You know, like they're actively, you know, but obviously times have changed. Right. I don't know. That's I'm. I mean, I would like to think that things would be a little different now. Should the Stanford prison experiment have been conducted in 2021? Oh, God, but, I don't know. I mean, even in tw- the study I just referenced was a 2007 study, which was right. not that long ago. No. So we've got 24 men, and they were divided into groups based on a coin toss. Mm-hmm. There were 12 prisoners and 12 guards, um, nine active participants in each group with three alternates. So ultimately, only 18 people really participated. Have you seen the video of when they tell the, like, footage of when they tell the cops that they're the cops? I don't know that I saw that exact footage, but I did watch some footage of this because a lot of it was recorded. Right. So the when the cops find out that they're the, playing the cops, right. there's, like, this, like, giggle that goes across the room and everybody's basically like, ha, ha, ha. Oh. Like... God, that's creepy. Yeah, it's super mm. creepy. Don't like it. Mm-hmm. Um, to that point, the guards or the cops who were, or the participants who were playing the guards or cops were given real uniforms, real nightsticks, and whistles. And some of them even wore mirror, mirrored sunglasses. Mm. Very Unabomber. Yeah. Prisoners were stripped, deloused, and dressed in sandals and numbered smocks. They were also given nylon stocking caps in lieu of having their heads shaved. Zimbardo explained, quote, Real male prisoners, we have learned, do feel humiliated and emasculated, and we thought we could produce the same effect more quickly by putting men in a dress without any underclothes. So the whole purpose of the way that they dressed these inmates mm-hmm. um, was to, to emasculate them. To feel them. shame? Yeah. Great. Yep. Um, because normally, like, male inmates would would be wearing pants. Um, right. Theoretically. Uh, uh, first of all, sec- uh, how fragile the system is. Yeah. One. But continue. Yeah. So there were several rules. Um, some of the rules were prisoners had to be blindfolded before being taken to the bathroom because they weren't supposed to know much about, you know, their situation. Mm-hmm. Prisoners were only addressed by their number and were forced to address other prisoners the same way, which is super fucking dehumanizing. Mm -hmm. Um, The only instruction the guards were given was to maintain order. They were allowed to use any means necessary short of physical violence. Guards were allowed to work in shifts, so they worked in eight-hour shifts, um, and then they would also be on, like, quote-unquote, on call when they weren't working. Right. So, um, in case a raid, which we will get to, which we will get to (laughs) Mm -hmm. in footage of the study, Zimbardo says to the guards, quote, you can create in the prisoners feelings of boredom, a sense of fear to some degree. You can create a notion of arbitrariness that their life is totally controlled by us, by the system, you, me, and they will have no privacy. We're going to take away their individuality in various ways. In general, what all this leads to is a sense of powerlessness. That is, in this situation, we'll have the power and they'll have none. Right. So I feel like you can already kind of tell that Zimbardo, who's supposed to be a psychologist and observer, has started kind of slipping into his role as well. So he um, is, he play, he's not the warden. Oh, what's a higher up person than the warden in the prison? Like a director. Okay. Um, and then there's another psychologist researcher who plays the warden. On the first night, the guards immediately begin to use psychological control tactics. For example, they woke up all the prisoners at 2.30 in the morning for a head count. Why? To be dicks. D-bad, dude. Yeah. Some of the prisoners didn't take it seriously, so the guards punished them by making them do push-ups at 5.30 in the morning. At 2.30 or 5.30? I'm sorry, 2.30 in the morning. Okay. The second day of the experiment, the prisoners had already decided to rebel. They removed all the numbers from their uniforms, took off their stocking caps, and barricaded themselves inside their cells using their beds. 
The guards called in reinforcements, then used fire extinguishers to force prisoners away from the barricades. Once the prisoner was away from the barricade, they would pull the prisoner out of the cell, put them in solitary confinement, and then remove everything uh, from their cell, including their bed. Right. Eventually, remember, this is day two. Right. (laughs) Eventually, the guards decided to establish a privileged cell, quote-unquote, where well-behaved prisoners were given their clothes and beds back and even allowed to have special meals. Mm. Tactics used to control the prisoners um, included stripping them of their clothes and beds, moving them at random, like, to different cells, withholding food rations, forbidding them from using the bathroom at night and being forced to use a bucket in their cell instead. Then the guards stopped emptying the bucket. <gasps> no, I forgot or slash didn't know about that. That <laughs> sucks. We're still on like day three. No. That's uh, one to two weeks. Yeah. We're we're getting in dirty real fast. Okay, so let's 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 unpack this. So obviously um the guards are really excited about the fact that they have power exactly and they're playing out some type of fantasy yeah essentially right yeah because we already know that they're more likely predisposed to lack empathy um however we could also argue that the prisoners would have the same mo because they really didn't know whether they were going to be guards or prisoners right that's true they didn't know until they were arrested. Mm-hmm. Um, the guards were brought in about the same time that the prisoners were arrested. Right. Okay. And, like, given their orders. Pep talk. Got it. Yeah. Um, so, theoretically, you're right. Except that the prisoners then experienced, like, this really dehumanizing treatment. Right. And the guards were basically able to work in shifts. Right. So, the guards were, like, able to check out yeah. mentally. Sure. Whereas the prisoners, this was a 24-hour role that they were forced to play right after 36 hours doug corpy uh who was one of the prisoners began to suffer from acute emotional disturbance including uncontrollable crying rage and disorganized thinking Mm -hmm. the guards tried to leverage his distress to meet their own ends like they were trying to control him based on his distress but then realized that he was actually distressed and not faking it so they released him from the experiment. That's oh, after wow. day three. Right. Well, it's this essentially is supposed to be torture. Like a, yeah. Yeah, it's psychological torture. Another prisoner broke down crying when a priest was brought in. I don't know why a priest was brought in. An actual priest. Well, they bring... Priests go to prisons all the time. I know, but this was like... Supposed to be an experiment. Right. I mean, they're looking at power hierarchies. So it makes sense to have multiple people kind of coming in and right. figuring out the hierarchies within those different groups. Right. But still. Um, when this other prisoner broke down crying, the other inmates started to turn against him and labeled him a bad prisoner. <gasps> so they asked him if he would like to leave. And he said no, because mm-hmm. everyone else is going to essentially hate him. Right. And he had to be reminded that it was just an experiment. And that was at, like, I think day four. Wow. Yeah. Later on the fourth day, some of the guards heard a rumor that one of the released prisoners, I think it was Doug Corpy, Mm -hmm. um, was going to come back with some of his friends and free the remaining inmates. Oh. Zimbardo and the guards disassembled the prison and moved it to a different floor in the building. Zimbardo waited in the basement in case the prisoner showed up and planned to tell him that the experiment had been terminated. Oh, wow. The prisoner never returned to the prison, and the prison was then rebuilt in the basement. But just think, like, how far detached to go to maintain the experiment. Exactly. Power. Yeah. On the sixth day, Zimbardo convened a mock parole board where prisoners were allowed to present their cases. So at this point, Zimbardo starts to realize that something is going on, that they were no longer seeing themselves as participants in this experiment, but as actual prisoners. They had completely detached and internalized their roles. So once he found out that people were internalizing their roles, he was able to analyze himself and realize that he had prioritized superintendent. That's the word I was looking for earlier. 
he had prioritized his role as superintendent over his role as psychologist. He got wrapped up in it, too. Yeah, he did. Another student named Christina Maslach had been brought in to interview and observe the experiment, and she was the one who really went to Zimbardo and was like, this has to stop now. Um, You can't keep doing this. Good for her. Yeah. So after six days, the experiment was called off. It was supposed to go for two weeks. Right. Like, these poor participants. Just imagine. And I didn't read much about, like, their psychological state after. Right. But I'm sure it was... I mean, look at little Albie. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Little Albie that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Um, traumatized for the rest of his life. Also, it's been months, because time is weird. That's what I meant. <laughs> yep. So... In review, what Zimbardo found was basically the guards fit into three categories. There were, like, the good guys who kind of did favors. In fact, one of the guards um, mentioned, like, sneaking pot in to some of the inmates Hmm. because he could tell that they were distressed. Yeah. Um, I don't know that they actually took or smoked it, but Mm -hmm. it's the thought that counts. (laughs) Um, About a third were considered tough but fair. And then a third are the ones who really got into their roles and enjoyed it and were super fucking cruel. Yikes. Um, Ultimately, this revealed that regular people, if given too much power, would transform into oppressors. Obviously, this is still highly controversial. controversial. Uh, Some people have even suggested that the guards may have been coached the whole way through to achieve the results that uh, Zimbardo wanted. Yeah, Poss- it's. Po- I mean, honestly, we, there's no way for us to know. Yeah, except that Zimbardo's still alive and still doing interviews. Oh, and he denies it? Well, we'll get to that in just a second. Okay. Um, and it's true, like, this wasn't a blank slate from the start. The goal of the experiments was to invoke um, what it was like to work and live in a brutal jail. Mm-hmm. So it, they definitely went in with a goal in mind, and they achieved that goal. There's also concern about the participants' behavior being shaped by knowing that they were being watched, which is called the Hawthorne effect, which basically means that your presence alters the outcome. Sure. Just by being there and seeing what's going on. That's a good point. Except that the um, prisoners completely forgot. Yeah. You know, I wonder I wonder how much of that transferred over to the guards and how well, involved they became. But I definitely agree with you. People definitely change when they know that they're being observed. Yeah, yeah. And I think if anything, in this case, it may have pushed people to get even more into their roles because they knew they were being observed. Mm. So they were like, I really have to act this out well. In the midst of, uh, like, processing everything, they just internalize their roles and the guards did too especially the really aggressive and violent ones i mean you think about like being on a really long zoom call like in the beginning you want to like sit a certain way you're trying to be professional but then you know if you're on a five-day zoom call at some point you're gonna you're gonna just do what feels right be comfortable yeah so at a certain point they have to break away or forget maybe about the fact they're being observed I mean, well, and even Zimbardo forgot that he was supposed to be observing. Right. Like, as as a researcher, he should have never been involved. True. Um, True. But he's like, oh, this is so interesting. This data is so interesting. Let me be a superintendent so I can really get in there and not disrupt. But he forgot that he's a researcher. Right. So he didn't shut it down. He let it go too far. So let's talk about, like, some of the outcomes and consequences. We can't talk about this without acknowledging the epidemic of police brutality in our country right now. Absolutely. I mean, it's just where we are. Yeah. Like, the Stanford Prison Experiment experiment seems to have demonstrated that with even the slightest nudge, people can become tyrants and oppressors. And what we've done as a society is enabled uh, entire work, like, uh, occupation to have power over other people and create these power dynamics and hierarchies um, that's resulting in especially black and brown communities being impacted and people being killed. Yeah. Um, 
So I think that this is a really powerful experiment to understand, especially through the lens of why we need to change the way that police systems function in our country. Um, Do police actually need to show up when there are issues of domestic violence or would a social worker be a better person? Would mm-hmm. nurses, or medical attention. Yeah. Would nurses or EMT, EMTs mm-hmm. be a better solution if someone is having a medical crisis or a mental health crisis? Um, because when police are your answer to everything, then there is a power dynamic. There's a power hierarchy that innately exists, and we all know what happens when given a little bit of power, especially without lack or with lack of training. Well, and that was going to be what I was going to say. You can't be trained for every single situation, and and people handle it incorrectly. Yeah, uh, and that's just a fact. Yeah. Um, also, I like so many people have pointed out that it takes more time to become a hairdresser than it does to become a police officer. Like, you don't need a bachelor's degree or a master's degree. There's very little on-the-job training other than, like, the technical aspects of how to do your job. But you don't get the, you know, active listening. Um, You don't get the uh, de-escalation training Mm -hmm. that you really need in order to keep people safe. You're reactionary, not preventative. Um, And I hate to say it, but we're going to have to talk more about that at some point. We also can't conclude this topic without talking about prison abolition. Zimbardo was later asked to testify before Congress about prison reform because of his experiment. Mm -hmm. His testimony, in his testimony, he explained how the experiment worked and described the study as, quote, an attempt to understand just what it means psychologically to be a prisoner or a guard. The experience of imprisonment undid, although temporarily, a lifetime of learning. Human values were suspended, Self-concepts were challenged, and the ugliest, most base, pathological side of human nature surfaced. The mere act of assigning labels to people and calling some people prisoners and other guards is sufficient to elicit psychological behavior, or is sufficient to elicit pathological behavior. Mm -hmm. So looking at our own prison system, Mm -hmm. which again is largely privatized or run by the military, um we are incarcerating people labeling them dehumanizing them which is what their early research found Mm -hmm. and then perpetuating these power dynamics within prison systems and what do we expect to be a result of that right like we are not there's no rehabilitative nature to our prison system there's no restorative justice within our prisons like it is truly a place to put people so that we don't have to deal with them and then people are making money off of them right um and again this is disproportionately impacting people community communities of color and uh people living at or below the poverty line people who have experienced homelessness or with mental health issues like right and obviously all that goes back to racism and you know when cops show up and and systemic racism yeah Mm -hmm. yeah um, one positive result of the study is that it did impact U.S. prisons in at least one positive way. Uh, for example, juveniles are no longer housed before trial with adult prisoners due to risk of violence against them. So, again, looking at power hierarchies and power dynamics, if you have young people who are housed with adults and we're, again, studying power structures and power dynamics within prison systems, we can expect that those who have been oppressed will continue to oppress others because we're all just looking for some control. So absolutely, the way that guards may um, perpetuate violence against adult prisoners, adult prisoners are likely to perpetuate similar violence towards juveniles. Mm -hmm. So um, one positive outcome was that that's no longer a thing. Also, the fact that there is a juvenile justice system that routinely places kids in uh, jail or prison. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, I mean, kids are often charged as adults. It happens every single day. Absolutely, it does. Um, and we know all about brain development and how inappropriate that is. Mm-hmm. Zimbardo himself has agreed that the uh, Stanford prison experiment was more of a demonstration than an experiment. So going back to what ownership does he really claim in this okay 
He says, quote, from the beginning, I have always said that it was a demonstration. The only thing that makes it an experiment is the random assignment to prisoners and guards. That's the independent variable. There is no control group. There is no comparison group. So it doesn't fit the standards of what it means to be an experiment. Okay. Uh, it's a very powerful demonstration of a psychological phenomenon, and it has its relevance. So basically what he's saying is that it was never designed to be an experiment. It was designed to be a demonstration of right. what could happen and an opportunity to look at the psychological phenomenon. Um, however, we know that most people reference as, reference it as an experiment. Right. Okay. Well, I think it also... Uh, I mean, that's the only way I've ever heard it. Yeah. Um, but the fact that they're taking the data to, like, analyze makes yeah. it feel more experimental than than demonst- demonstration. Demonstrative. Thank you. Yeah. Um, you're right. And I, so I think that we have learned so much from the Stanford prison experiment, there's a lot of people who bring into question its validity mm-hmm. because there was no control group. There was like no parallel group that was being studied or monitored to, um, you know, determine how people would act in other circumstances right. within prison systems. Uh, there's a lot of question about, of course, you know, ethics as it relates uh, to the Stanford Prison Experiment. Uh-huh. Um, also, were the guards coached? Like, who who told the guards, you know? I mean, either they were coached or they're fucking sociopaths, right? Basically, that's what it boils down to, it seems. Or maybe there is something to be said about human nature here. I think it goes back to a conversation I had recently. I don't remember if it was with you. Every conversation I feel like I've had with you. <laughs> uh, who else do I talk to? But about people being inherently neutral. Mm-hmm. So I, in doing my work, have come to the determination that I don't believe that people are good or bad. I believe that people are inherently neutral and respond to whatever circumstance they are in based on their previous experiences. Mm-hmm. So assigning... Nurture. Right. So assigning like goodness or evil to them is a binary that places people in boxes and doesn't Mm -hmm. allow them to exist outside of anything else. There's no nuance. Right. So when you see people as inherently neutral and reactionary or responsive to their environment, then I think you're able to see them in more complex ways that might actually be able to help you process their needs in more productive ways. And what this reminded me of was like, was Lord of the Flies. Yes, this has been very similarly. uh, There have been several analogies to Lord of the Flies based on this experiment. Absolutely. I mean, people who have no business getting into the business are getting into the business. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, And we really see what happens when people who at one moment were all equals are suddenly um, Mm self-governing and how dangerous that can be. And of course, in Lord of the Flies, it results in the death of one of the kids. Yeah. And this is a book. I'm sure everybody read it in high school. Or has at least heard of it. You may have spark notes it. Right. Probably. But a a school of boys ends up on an island alone. And so they're trying to basically govern themselves as children. Yeah. Yeah. And Again, I, I think you're exactly right. It speaks to, um, in that instance, it was a lot about survival mm-hmm. um, or perceived safety. Whereas here, like the guards were obviously safe and were cruel. Regardless. Regardless. Yeah. Prisoners were not safe psychologically. Yeah. Um, physically, they may have been safe because Zimbardo said, you know, you can't hurt the prisoners, but psychological safety is just as important as physical safety. Right. So, yeah, that's a really excellent parallel. Thank you for bringing up Lord of the Flies. Absolutely. It's such an, it's just, it's fascinating. Um, And troubling. And I don't think that, like, they would do, they wouldn't do that, this experiment today. They can't because Um, of ethics. Because of ethics. Uh, (laughs) Because. Crazy. (laughs) Because now, um, so this is all the information we have. It's 
Well, several people have attempted to recreate um, aspects of this. Okay. So, like, the 2007 study that recreated the ad. ad. um, There was also, I read, I didn't write this down, so I'm going to have to go off the cuff. But um, there was another group that tried to recreate this experiment and didn't have the same results. Um, But I don't remember why. So several people have attempted to recreate it. It is a moral and ethical issue. Sure. Like, I know for social workers, we have, um, like, a code of ethics that we have to agree to. Mm -hmm. And doing this experiment would be in direct conflict with that code of ethics. Right. So... I mean, uh, part of it is dehumanizing other people. And so I can see right off the bat. Yeah. Yeah. Not going to happen. Not going to fly. Well, and there have been so many other experiments that kind of uh, end in similar ways or begin in similar ways. Like there's the, did you hear about the blue eye and brown eye experiment that was done in a school? Yes. I think. Uh So kind of a similar thing where a teacher was like, we hate all people with blue eyes. Mm-hmm. And the kids with brown eyes started to gang up on the kids with blue eyes mm-hmm. after no time at all. Sure. Um, which I might, you know, there's another one that I'll cover eventually, so I'm not going to bring that one up. But it has to do with shocking people. Wow. What a journey. Yeah. I feel, So I think I told you my, page, or my um, notes for this topic were seven pages. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really could have done so much more. Like, this yeah. is so fascinating. And the research that has come out of this, like other peer-reviewed articles or people who have um, had commentary about this topic, it's all so profound. Absolutely. So uh, hopefully we'll come back to a similar topic at some point and maybe talk more about prison reform or uh, abolition even and police brutality. Which are not things that I want to talk about, but I recognize that we have to be talking about them because if we're not talking about them, who is? Yeah, that's a really good point. Absolutely. All right, guys, we are going to take a quick break and we'll be right back for the history portion. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Zandy. And I'm Liz. We're the hosts of Human Seeking Human, a podcast where we read the most entertaining personal ads, articles, and obituaries from old newspapers. Each week, we find each other's dream dates, read wild misconnections, and take a look at the most offbeat articles and ads from newspapers as far back as 150 years ago. We discuss everything from Hawaiian volcano murders to how personal ads played a big role in queer love life. So check out Human Seeking Human on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can follow us at Human Seeking Pod on Instagram and Twitter, where we post some of our favorite newspaper clippings and weird ads. Hope you like what you hear, and we look forward to talking to you soon. Until then. And we're back. All right. So what you got for us today? Now that we, you know, have gone down the human suck rabbit hole. (laughs) So mine is a little bit of human suck, but it does have a happy ending. Okay. Okay. So today I am going to be covering the Supreme Court case, Loving versus Virginia. (gasps) Oh, wow. Okay. Right. And so this, did you see the movie? No, I haven't seen the movie. I haven't either, but I definitely want to. We need to have a movie night soon and watch it. We definitely do. Um, All right. So Mildred Dolores Loving, which is just the best fucking last name. I know know that it's uh, Richard's last name, but you know they got married so she took it but like it's so good (laughs) it's the most beautiful last name it really is if you had to pick a last name pick loving right so she was the daughter of musical bird jetter and the oliver jetter she was born and raised in central point in caroline county virginia she was known as a little soft-spoken very humble uh, maybe even a little bit shy she wouldn't hurt a fly i mean if you ever see any footage of her she's just like a lady yeah she really is she's so classy her name is mildred it is that's just such a classy name it is like what a cute quintessential little little name little name mildred identifies herself as quote indian rappahannock but also reports being Cherokee, Portuguese, and of African-American ancestry. 
She is most often referred to as biracial with Native American and African American ancestry. So Richard Loving was born um, son of Lola Loving and Twilly Loving. I love Twilly the Lamin. names in this story. He was also born and grew up in Central Point, Virginia. So he is a white man, and his grandfather actually fought for uh, in the Confederacy in the Civil War. Oh. Caroline County, Virginia, adheres to, at the time, it adhered to strict Jim Crow segregation laws. Um, however, their town was very diverse. Um, and if you're unfamiliar with the Loving versus Virginia Supreme Court case, it's about interracial marriage. Right. Uh, so there were other members of the community that had uh, partners of a different race. The couple met in high school. Aww. And they fell in love. That's so cute. After they decided to start a family and Mildred was <clears throat> and Mildred was pregnant, the couple drove to Washington DC, our nation's capital, on uh, in June of nineteen fifty-eight. They got married in DC because interracial marriage was legal there, and they believed that by going to a place where it was legal, it would they would right. were able to carry that over into the state that they lived. Right. Um, but Virginia had uh, something called the Virginia Racial Integrity Act of 1924, which is fucking shitty. <laughs> um, the important distinction is um, this act says that whites cannot marry, quote, non-whites. I mean, it was 1924. We expect it to be hella shitty. Um, however, this was almost 1960, right? 1958. Yeah. yeah. So we're looking at 25 years, 20 yeah. years difference. The um, thing, my dad was six, though. Like, it's still it's still touchable by, like, people that we know. It's wild. Well, and your parents are about the same age as mine and probably remember desegregation. Mm-hmm. So I'm surprised that... Uh, Richard and Mildred even knew each other in school. Like, I'm surprised that they didn't go to two separate schools. Yeah, they went to the same school. If it was a really rural community, that may have had something to do with it. Like, maybe there wasn't a second school to attend. As Mildred and Richard slept peacefully in their beds after returning to Central Point, Virginia, the police orchestrated a raid on their home in the early morning hours of July 11th, 1958. So it was around, like, 2 a.m. The thought was that they were, like, hoping to find them, like, being intimate. Mm. Um, because interracial sex was also illegal in Virginia at the time. Stay um, out of people's fucking bedrooms. Right? Like, who gives a shit? I, I know. I I'm know. sorry. Continue. There's going to be a lot of that. Um, so when they found them sleeping, they're like, hey, what are you guys doing? And she was able to, like, provide them with their marriage certificate, which was just from a few weeks before. Um, they were then told that marriage, their marriage certificate was not valid in the state of Virginia, and the couple was arrested. Quote, the Lovings were charged under Section 20 through 58 in Virginia Code, which prohibited interracial couples from being married out of state and then returning to Virginia. Also, Section 20 through 59, which classified interracial marriage or relationships as a felony, punishable by a prison sentence of between one and five years. On January 6, 1959, the Lovings pled guilty to, quote, cohabitating as a man and wife against the peace and dignity of the Commonwealth. Against the peace and dignity yeah. of the Commonwealth. Fuck that. They were sentenced to one year in prison. <gasps> they did, however, avoid prison time by making an agreement with the courts. The courts decided if the Lovings uh, promised to leave Virginia and not return for 25 years, that they would not serve any time in prison. The Lovings then moved to Washington, D.C. They lived there for several years, and they raised three children, Donald, Sydney, and Peggy. Oh. <laughs> um, but they really missed home. Like, it's it's hard to relate and yet easy to relate. Like, that's their home. Yeah. But it's been so shitty to them. So, But they really wanted to return. Well, I think there's a difference between willingly, like, choosing to leave your home. Like, oh, absolutely. I fled my hometown um, versus being told you have to leave. Right. Like, 
being in a place that you love, where your family is, like they both grew up there. It's all they knew. And these were different times where people didn't move mm-hmm. like the way that they knew. Right. Now. So their, you know, parents are presumably there. Siblings. Siblings. Yeah. Yeah. The whole shebang. I mean, you know, they, they were born, they were both born there, both grew up knowing each other. Yeah. That was like where their roots were. Then they're kind of flung into Washington, D.C., um, in 1963, Mildred wrote a letter to the U.S. Attorney General asking for help. Robert F. Kennedy mm-hmm. was the Attorney General uh, and referred the Lovings to the American Civil Liberties Union, who agreed to take their case. Uh, and Amy Poehler is their attorney through the American Civil Liberties Union. That's right. Hamilton, too. Hamilton, too. Hashtag. Hamlet, too. <laughs> you did it this time. <laughs> um, in November of 1963, the legal battle began. Bernard Chen and Philip Herkstop were two ACLU lawyers who were working with the Levings. They filed a motion asking Judge Basil to vacate his conviction, um, his previous conviction, and he declined. Uh, this guy is an absolute piece of shit. Um, and he stated that his decision was based on the fact that God created all races and put them on s- separate places on the map, basically, and that this was proof that he didn't absolutely think that God intended not, them to mix. Yeah, fuck this guy. Absolutely not, sir. Uh, also, we're all, like, science has now proven that all human species, like... Yeah, we're all from Africa. We're, I almost said human species. Like, the whole human <laughs> race is mm. from Africa. Yeah. Um, Read a fucking book, Basil. So I uh, was reading, I don't remember what it was. It was uh, probably a Jodie Picoult book because. 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 um, And they were talking about how when you go to the U.S. Supreme Court that uh, it's basically like they pick the best candidate or like the, the person who's best going to represent, even though it's often a larger like lawsuit that includes multiple families. Mm-hmm. Um, so do we know if that was kind of the situation here? Like someone chose the Lovings to be part of this case? Yeah. Um, I mean, they reached out to the eternal ge- attorney general and they referred to them okay. to the ACLU. So, okay. I mean, there were other, there were other Supreme or there were, I don't know if they made it to the Supreme court, other cases in the 1880s about, interracial marriage that 1880s? were 1880s mm-hmm. okay that's that, a long long time before yeah that were um basically basically the argument is is it unconstitutional does it um is it illegal under the 14th amendment right. um and all of those previous cases said that that it was that it yeah i'll have to remember the exact type of uh supreme court case i'm thinking of and see if loving falls under that um but we'll talk more about that later i was just curious if you knew anything about other cases that were brought up at the same time as part of like a mass suit none that i know of i think it was just them okay so the lawyers took that case because of fuckface basil they took it to the supreme uh court the virginia supreme court of appeals the virginia supreme court um also upheld the original ruling Mm mm-hmm like uh, my research today it was rough it was really really rough obviously (laughs) we both had rough topics yeah i mean at least yours has a really happy ending it really does and like being you know we just picked out my fucking wedding band oh yeah and my fiance is black and so this really hit home for me right absolutely and i you know i texted him and i was like oh like holy shit like i'm you know i'm so grateful for you and i I love you so so much. much You know, yeah, I'm not going to cry. It's fine. Okay. The lawyers filed another appeal, and this time the case made it all the way to the top. The United States Supreme Court in April 1967. Quote, during oral arguments before the Supreme Court, Virginia's Assistant Attorney General Robert D. McWayne III defended the constitutionality of his state's anti- miscegenation law and compared it to similar regulations against incest and polygamy 
It's not the same fucking thing. Yeah, no. I, I mean, no. loving a consenting adult is not the same thing as incest or polygamy. No. Well, polygamy, it's a whole other rabbit oh, hole. Oh, yeah. I'm not touching that with the 10 No, <laughs> not even close. Um, Cohen and Herkschkop, which are the two lawyers, meanwhile argued that the Virginia statute was illegal under the 14th Amendment of the Constitution, which guarantees all citizens due process and equal protection under the law. End quote. The Loving's lawyers argued that Virginia's interracial marriage laws and others like it were rooted in racism and white supremacy. Obviously. Yeah. I mean, how could you swing it any other way? You remove racism and white supremacy and suddenly the law ceases to have any meaning. Right. Absolutely. Um, Hirschkop says, uh, quote, these are not health and welfare laws. These are slavery laws, pure and simple, end mm-hmm. quote. The Supreme Court announced its ruling in Loving versus Virginia on June 12th. <gasps> oh. 1967, which is now known as Loving Day. Aw, I know. In a unanimous decision, they found that the Virginia's interracial marriage law violates the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. Chief Justice Era Warren wrote, quote, Under our Constitution, the freedom to marry or not marry a person of another race resides with the individual and cannot be infringed by the state. End quote. The ruling not only overturned the Loving's previous conviction, but it also struck down laws against interracial uh, marriage in 16 U.S. states, including Virginia. Whoop, whoop, woohoo! <laughs> um, so what happened to the Loving's? Quote, the Loving's had lived secretly on a Virginia farm for much of their legal battle. Oh, yeah. I love that. I know. That makes me happy. Yeah. I hate that they had to do it in secret, but I'm so right. glad that they were able to be where they wanted to be. Me too. Um, but after the Supreme Court decision, they returned to the town of Central Point to raise their three children. Richard Loving was killed in 1975 when a drunk driver in Caroline County struck the couple's car. No. I know. I fucking know. It's so sad. Oh, poor Mildred. Mildred survived the crash and went on to spend the rest of her life in Central Point. She died in 2008, having never remarried. It was her one true love. Yeah. Loving versus Virginia is considered one of the most significant legal decisions of the civil rights era. By declaring Virginia's anti-miscegenation law unconstitutional, the Supreme Court ended prohibitions on interracial marriage and dealt a major blow to segregation. Despite the court's decision, however, some states were slow to alter their laws. The last state to officially accept the ruling was Alabama, which only removed an anti-miscegenation status from its state constitution in two fucking thousand. What? Yes. That's only 21 years ago. What? Yep. It's fucked up. In addition to its implications of interracial marriage, Loving versus Virginia was also invoked in subsequent court cases concerning same-sex marriage. Yep. In 2015, for example, Justice Attorney Kennedy cited the Loving case in his opinion on the Supreme Court case Oberfeld versus Hodges, which legalized gay marriage across the United States. Also in June. Right? Yeah, it was uh, June 26th. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, I think. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So June is like the month of love. It's pride love. It's a huge moment in civil rights history. Absolutely. That's phenomenal. Yeah. So many things to celebrate. So much love to celebrate. So much love. Oh, God, my brain. Like doing these notes was like, you know, I just had a flood of emotions. Oh, I'm sure. I really did. I'm sure. Um. So, you know, a lot of shit to get through, but, like, such a powerful outcome and, um, you know, the fact that it was, you know, able to be used, you know, later in 2015 for marriage equality um, because that's really what it comes down to. Yeah. Is um, It's being just able called to, marriage, Allie. That's right. Being yep. able to marry whoever the fuck you want. It's none of your business. Stay the fuck out of our bedrooms. That's great. Uh, they would have loved us in the 1960s. 
being queer, you're in an interracial relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean... I would have been screaming from the rooftops, fuck you, fuck you, <laughs> fuck you. Yeah. Oh, Allie, would you like to start? Um, tell us about intersections for this week. What do you think? I think the the most obvious is going to be, uh, well, the power dynamic. That's what I was yeah. thinking, too. So I'm thinking specifically about, like, fuckface Basil, who you know, decided that he wasn't going to go back on his original ruling. And, like, I'm wondering what pressures were behind him from other government figures and of the community, which appears to be a really, like, loving community. So I don't know that that would have been necessarily it. But regardless, you know, he did make that decision. He was in a role, and mm-hmm. he was filling, fulfilling that role. Yeah. Um, and other people had been labeled, um, which I think is, like... The prisoners that we were talking about with uh, the Stanford prison experiment was like the guards were fulfilling the role that they thought they were supposed to fulfill. Right. Um, And the prisoners had been labeled as prisoners and therefore they treated them as subhuman. Mm -hmm. Um, And Fuckface Basil was fulfilling his role as a judge. Mm -hmm. Um, As being a fuckface. As being a fuckface and did not honor the fact that he was still talking to people right. humans right um who were just as deserving of love safety and comfort as anyone um so i think that yeah putting labels on people power dynamics and hierarchies yeah you know in my situation though like you know uh, Robert Kennedy and also the two lawyers from the American Civil Liberties Union were just as eager in the opposite way to help. Right. Um, so, you know, ultimately they use their power for good and for a belief system that is right. Um, so that is... Yeah, I think that it goes back to when you give people the opportunity to be good and you have taken out, taken away... Um, things that might have like I assume that their upbringing was very different than fuckface basil Mm -hmm. in that they were able to move past as much of or whatever prejudices they had in order to be able to really advocate for the lovings right absolutely think critically and not be a fuckface yeah yeah maybe some people are inherently good I take I don't take back my statement about (laughs) neutrality earlier but Uh Um, I know I think that, that I've been changed for the better because I knew you because I knew you I have been changed for, for good. good uh yours had a much happier outcome than mine and was like it gives me so much hope to know that we are I I think we've used this Martin Luther King quote before but the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice Mm -hmm. and that's what I see in this loving versus Virginia case and how it was then used in Oberfell v. Hodges Mm -hmm. Um, and I think the takeaway from this week is just to you know be sure that we're you know continuing the the legacy of change um and you know progress forward into a more loving world and i think that thinking critically about the roles that you inhabit Mm -hmm. like the spaces that you inhabit and the labels that you have for other people like if we take away these labels how can we as people support each other and not perpetuate harmful systems right like even if it's not to the extreme of the stanford prison experiment even if you're not you know, a judge who has to make a ruling about interracial relationships, what can you do in your everyday life to right. peel away some of these labels and just be more loving and, you know, not be a dick. D-bad. D-bad. It's D-bad, what it all man. comes down to. It really does. It always <laughs> comes back to the D-bad. Awesome. Well, I think, I think that's, you know. That's beautiful. Yeah. This is my happiest intersection so far. Good. I'm glad. Yeah. We went. Yeah. We. It took us a second to get there, but we're there. We're here. We're happy. Um, We are here. Um, I enjoyed both of our topics this week, mm -hmm. even though they were both dark and pretty disturbing in some ways. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Mine did have a happy ending. It did have a happy ending. Yeah. 
Yours has a lot of unanswered questions. <laughs> we'll probably have to come back to this at some point. Um, maybe oh, I'll yeah. do a part two to the Stanford Ooh, prison Where experiment. are they now? <laughs> Expose. How long have they been in therapy? Right. <laughs> probably since 1971. That's exactly right. Um, well, thank you guys so much for listening. Um, if you have not left us a review on Apple Podcasts, please just take the time to do so. It helps us out so much. Write a little comment. We're giving, you know, we're giving out stickers still for those who uh, participate in that. So let us know. We also really love reading them. You know, it occurred to me when listening to an old episode that we haven't read one of our reviews in a while. So we need to start our next episode with reading a review. That sounds great. I would love to do that. Great. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. If you support us, blink twice. And if you're out there, keep listening. Thank you for listening to Podcasts Without an Audience. Find us on social media at pod without an odd. You can find us on Instagram or Facebook. Or find us on the web at podcastwithoutanaudience.com. Shoot us an email at podwithoutanaud at gmail.com. Our cover art is created by an actual angel, Ashley Acevedo. Our music is by Zach Smith and Ted Oliver. Editing by Jacob Beeson. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and all of our nerdy content. Please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us today. Oh, and check out our Patreon for exclusive content and our pasta recipe. Again, thanks, and keep listening.